July 15th. Let me go around the table and introduce the guys. We've got Mr. Jeff Simpson. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Hunter. Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Jeff? Not much. Not much. Beautiful day. Happy to be here once again with the beautiful Vegas cuckoo gang. Yes, sir. Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. My name's Hunter Hilligus, and you can find me at ratevegas.com. Before we talk about our topics today, um, time for a little bit of an announcement. Um, <laughs> the Palooza 3, yes, thank you. Um, October 30th, 2010, at the fabulous Flamingo on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, we are very, uh, we're very excited to be doing this with the folks at the Flamingo and at, and at Harrah's. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We will have a website with all of the details that will go up shortly. Um, if not, by the time you are hearing this, it may already be up. The website will be at VegasPodcastAppalooza.com or you know, check your local listings. If any of the requisite blogs, et cetera, et cetera, we'll have links, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. October 30th is a Saturday, so, you know, no excuses for having to get off work or anything. It's on a nice weekend. Halloween is the next day, so, uh, you know, whatever that means for you. If you're a Wiccan or something, maybe you're going to be – maybe you're booked. But otherwise, you know, you should come and hang out. Check it out. Um, we're looking forward to it. More details about guests and that sort of thing will be forthcoming. But uh, it was a lot of fun the last two years, and um, – looking forward to it again and just also wanted to say thank you to fine folks at Harris and the Flamingo for uh, for hosting it this year. Um, I think we're all really excited about it. So let's get into it. Um, Topic-wise, one topic that was in the news this week that I actually didn't put on the sheet uh, is the topic of um, Win Las Vegas and uh, the tipping situation. So um, in 2006, I think it was, Wynn changed uh, a policy at his resort, uh, a, a longstanding policy um, citywide, and began sharing tips that were given to dealers with some of the floor people. Um, sort of an interesting situation that has arisen, especially at the high-end properties, was that the floor people that manage the dealers were typically making less money than the people that they manage, the dealers themselves, due to the way that the tips worked uh, or had worked in the past. Um, and the result of that was that, in some cases, dealers that would that would uh, were you know being looked at for a promotion to a management track weren't interested because it actually meant a pay cut, which is you know not a typical thing in American business. Typically, as you move down, move up the management ladder, your your pay typically increases. Um, so. It created kind of a strange, at least by those standards, um, situation in terms of compensation. Win's solution was to um, create a tip pool and came up with a formula to redistribute that money um, to some of the floor people so that uh, they actually got a pretty significant bump in the salary and uh, and tried to, um, you know, smooth out that what they considered an inequality. Um, 
clearly a very controversial decision that led to um, you know legal action. Ultimately, it led to the unionization of the dealers that win Las Vegas. Um, it had a lot. There was a lot of fallout, and ever since then, these issues have kind of been working their way through the legal system. And this week, there was an important um, decision rendered by the Nevada State Labor Commissioner, uh, basically saying that when the company, when Wind Resorts did this, they did not break any state law, which is a significant win for win, um, and uh, you know, a setback for the folks that considered this to be um, inequitable. So, you know, this has been covered ad nauseum all over the place. What I'm really more interested in talking about is the fallout from this and what comes next. Um, how will this impact other strip casinos, if at all? Um, will we see this policy spread to some of Wynn's competitors at the high end, like um, MGM with Bellagio and Aria, uh, Las Vegas Sands with the Venetian and the Palazzo, and um, maybe Harris with Caesars Palace? Are, are we going to see this spread? Is this um, the way of the future? And uh, is it a dangerous change for some of these other operators to make? Or is, is, is this a precedent-setting decision? Um, Jeff, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I think one of the interesting things will be as a few new properties open up, we have Cosmopolitan opening. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what their policy is, um, if and when Icon either opens or sells and somebody else opens Fontainebleau, um, what their policy will be, and then you know the next round of openings. It's sort of difficult for properties to do it to uh, workforces that are in place. Um, I think Harris is, is using that possibility as an, of, of including a um, a stipulation in a contract saying that they have the right to do it at Caesars. I think it's a negotiating ploy um, with the dealers. But um, I think that in the long run, and I don't know whether we're talking two years, five years, ten years, that um, it's going to prove to be enough of an advantage for win in luring um, more talented um, first-line supervisors, those what he calls their team leaders, um, customer service team leaders, or whatever they are on the in the pit, whether it's on the box or <clears throat> at craps tables or supervising blackjack and other table games. I think that um, you will see um, other casinos eventually adopt it. Now, the you know that's. That's within the industry. Um, there, there is, you know, the the courts obviously are going to get a crack at interpreting Nevada law to see if the labor commissioner made the right call. I presume that the courts are going to are going to rule in favor of win, but I'm not certain of that. Um, but there are a couple other wild cards. I think that the initiative process um, it's pretty easy in this state, um, but it may be difficult to fund. For, for a group like dealers to fund the process. But if they got it on the ballot, they'd probably have a pretty good chance. Um, the And then secondly, there's the legislative approach, but I think that's almost, uh, uh, I think the casino industry, even though most of the companies don't do it, they wouldn't want the legislature to restrict their right to do it. So I doubt that um, that will be an avenue that will be successful for the dealers. So just if I had to predict, I would say two years, five years, ten years down the road, um, whenever other competing high-end casinos 
uh, feel that it's an unfair advantage for wind. Um, and Encore and what other other properties um, wind may control um, that they're going to do something similar. One thing that's interesting about this labor commissioner's decision, you know, Wynn said that these supervisors are going to um, share 40% shares of the tip pool. In other words, all the re other dealers get a 100% share. The the pit bosses get paid a salary plus get um, only four-tenths as much as the dealers. But there's nothing to say that he couldn't say it's a full share. And so, you know, the big – the there is the potential for getting past some tipping point that would alienate the public to maybe make politicians act. I'm not sure whether that would happen or if Wynn would change it further, but, um, you know, it's not a static situation. So obviously there's a lot of variables that will come into play, but, um, you know, it is something that I think is going to happen more as more properties open up. Dave, you know if this has been done in any other jurisdictions, or is this sort of a first in gaming? Pretty sure they do it down in Laughlin, some of Don Laughlin's properties. Yeah, I wrote a story in 06 or 07 about the Riverside has done it since they opened. But, you know, everybody here said, oh, you know, but that place is, you know, it's a different kind of market. But they did it first, and there were no complaints. But, yeah, they definitely do it in Laughlin. Interesting. Well, um, it was an uh, important marker um, in that in that um, <clears throat> process, and so it's at least worth mentioning. But um, so much has been said about that, but I'm not sure how much more we need to uh, belabor the point. Um, so let's move on. I want to talk about the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. Um, this property uh, located between Bellagio and City Center um, is set to open in December. So they've started to crank up the marketing machine a little bit. Uh, they launched a website. They um, are now starting to be active in social media like Twitter. Um, and so people are starting to talk about the Cosmo and what it's going to be and um, what, you know, what kind of experience to expect and if they're going to be innovating in the market and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, Chuck, I want to ask you about this because you've covered Cosmo, I think, pretty extensively, especially in the last few weeks as they've started to reveal more of um, what it's really going to be like. Um, see, as you have now seen um, uh, you know, room mock-ups or photos or whatever, um, that, that kind of information and also some more <clears throat> details on, on what the place is going to be like, what's your impression of the Cosmopolitan? Are you um, – you excited about it? How do you think it's going to, uh, you know, fare in the market? You know, I have to say that uh, I had pretty low hopes. Uh, I had low hopes, but I had, you know, a sort of a glimmer that, and I think we discussed this uh, on a podcast earlier, that uh, I had hoped that it would be a nice independent alternative, an upscale kind of different sheep place in the middle of all that other stuff there. Small, cozy, comfy, nice. What they seem to have unveiled has made my dreams come true in a lot of ways. The rooms are pretty sharp. Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of funky. They're larger because most of them are 
uh, well, let me just reel back a little bit. They come in two types of flavors. One are like the condo, which have terraces and full kitchenettes and all that kind of jazz. Uh, and then there's like a city room, which is a dual queen. This is intended as the uh, casino tower, the uh, hotel room. Uh, so if, if, if you're looking for a larger type of room, uh, you want to have a balcony or any, you know, a nicer kind of suite that's not going to set you back because there's going to be so many of them. It's not going to uh, to crush you like in a lot of other luxury suites and offer more of a a home a homey kind of vibe. You know, the Cosmopolitan is is what they're offering is is pretty smashing. Uh, the rooms are really smart. I know the the person who is uh, responsible for a lot of the designs or the head of their design interior design department is a former uh, Win D and D employee, Mary Lammers, I think is her name. Uh, she had a lot to do with. You see a lot of these kinds of touches in the rooms and the designs and the decor. Uh, uh, the food lineup is stellar. Uh, what they're they're offering these uh, uh, casino cabanas, which we're all still kind of mystified about, which is going to kind of be like you can uh, rent a small private gaming space, uh, which will be you know, more like a room, like with with views and stuff. You know, so let's say you want to get ten or fifteen of your buddies together and, and hit the craps table or a blackjack table or whatever, but have a little bit of privacy while you're doing it, or a celebrity type of deal. You know, they're going to have those things for rent, which is something that, you know, doesn't exist at this stage of the game. Uh, and their marketing, too, it really is uh, has been pretty phenomenal. Uh, we've seen, uh, on Twitter at least, uh, probably about a dozen Cosmo employees showing up and just start feeding information out. There's no veil of secrecy. There's no... Uh, if you say anything, you get shot on site. They're really just trying to get stuff out there in a very friendly way. They're involved in the conversation. Uh, they're speaking with with uh, all a large chunk of our most active readership on Twitter and all of our writers. Everybody, it just, it's it's a tremendous uh, conversation, and it's uh, it's very refreshing. You know, they talk about things like. Uh, cookies and different types of food and art and wine and you know they're sending links to a Chuck D song which protests the the uh, uh, the law the immigration law in Arizona you know taking kind of a half a political stand by by mentioning these things this is stuff we don't get from casinos it and I mentioned this to Dave with his uh, his uh, Twitter report that he had put out uh, a few weeks ago that they're probably adding a whole bunch of new categories to uh, to the way he had broken out the types of tweets that people are doing. Granted, the property isn't opening yet. Is open yet? When they do, they're going to be a lot more hardcore with uh, with marketing things. But I can't say enough about how uh, excited I think all of us are about the Cosmopolitan. It's going to have a nice, uh, independent, uh, upscale uh, vibe. And their CEO is on Twitter too, John Unwin, and he's he's a fascinatingly interesting, cool guy. Yeah, I started following him actually um, because I was impressed by the fact that he was engaging, um, you know, uh, people that cover him, cover the company, and I, I was, um, you know, it's, it's cool to see that, and just he seems to kind of get it. 
uh, yeah. to be kind of with it. I, I, I like the what I've seen of the rooms too. One thing I wanted to ask you though, how do you feel about the prices? Because some of their pricing is above, um, you know, some of their competitors in that in those same few weeks and granted you know it, it's their opening so maybe it's an aberration but um do you think that they are overpriced for their for a new property trying to you know break into a market that's probably oversupplied uh yeah potentially the prices are a little on the top side but uh if you if you poke around their website they have a whole page of fascinating interesting deals unlike any other deals you've ever seen instead of you know 38% off on this like they're, they're giving away like I can't remember the exact numbers but if you book two nights in a $300 room they're going to give you $260 in food and beverage credits you know so basically you're getting two nights and, and you know two meals in their restaurants possibly for two for you know 600 bucks which is kind of a deal you know it's kind of a steal yeah. comparatively so, and they also are offering like bottle service to your suite, and uh, you know, you buy one night, you get one free. A bunch of different types of things. And Mike actually had written a post uh, that's on Vegas tripping somewhere, uh, which which talks about a lot of these deals. But there is they're doing some different different thinking stuff. And also, it should be mentioned that their head of PR is uh, Amy Rossetti, who is also a former win. Uh, PR person. She was, I think, right. maybe the direct, directly below Jennifer Dunn. So they have that eye of the tiger, you know, that message has got to be nailed, but they don't have the veil of secrecy. That's the big difference. Well, I think it's going to be, you know, I'm excited. I'm, I'm planning to be there in December. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you said you were too, Chuck. Um, from the perspective of, you know, Jeff and Dave, you guys have seen a million places open. Um, how do you feel about the Cosmo? Um, maybe Dave will start with you. I think it's, you know, opening at a very interesting time. Definitely they have a lot of competition. I think it's good that they're trying new stuff. I think you have to try new stuff. If they just kind of did the same thing we've seen in the past couple of years, I think they wouldn't have a chance. You know, this way at least they have a chance. But I think it's going to be a real dogfight. Yeah. Um, we were just by uh, by there yesterday around the, uh, you know, the ground floors and their uh, sort of smoky colored glass has sort of been finished. A lot of very interesting, you know, not quite as sharp of angles as you see in crystals, but a lot of unusual, uh, you know, unusually shaped glass over the first, you know, first few public floors. Um, at, at the base of the Cosmopolitan. Um, and um, I think my girlfriend said it, remind her of the, it reminded her of some of the department stores in Minneapolis. Um, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the thing, you know, for me, one thing that I read that was interesting and probably a good change is that they have altered their plans to, have, to spread the casino over the first couple floors and right. have moved all gaming operations to the ground floor. Um, I know I had reported a couple of years ago that when they said they were going to have gaming on multiple floors, Steve Wynn said that that was a horrible mistake, that that's proven in Atlantic City and um, in the, uh, you know, when the uh, Aladdin first um, reopened in 2000, they had their high limit gaming in the London Club on the second floor. Um, gaming on multiple floors has proven to be a disaster. 
Um, and, uh, you know, with the exception potentially of private clubs, whether at Encore or at Playboy Club and in Macau. Um, but certainly in, in the United States, it hasn't been proven to be successful. Um, the, the folks who own Cosmo right now, Deutsche Bank, um, they're pretty tight with Wynn. It wouldn't surprise me if they, uh, um, you know, informally consulted with, with him. And they've, uh, they've changed their, uh, the floor plan, which I think is a, is a smart move. People will probably go to upper floors for food. You know, Aria has done that to some extent. Um, and so I think that's probably a positive change. You know, what Chuck was mentioning in terms of the way they structure their deals, um, you know, previous, you know, opened properties have been aggressively doing some of that. I mean, I, you guys may or may not get Venetian and Palazzo offers, but, um, you know, they, they aggressively, um, and when you say 600 for two nights, including 240 and resort credits, I think that, I think that um, Venetian, Venetian probably targets which restaurants you can use a little more closely, but, um, you know, I would say the average room rate, price, room rate price probably less at Venetian Palazzo. Um, I think that their targeted rate, um, and the analysts have talked about this a little, they seem to think that they can come in at 300 a night. I think there's no way they can come in at 300 a night if Wynn and Encore aren't getting it. Um, you know, Aria had big, big hopes and big dreams about coming in um, right at the top. And, you know, they, they, they slotted in below Bellagio in many cases, um, certainly below Wynn and Encore and, you know, probably at rough parity with Venetian and Palazzo. Um, you know, Cosmopolitan does not have the benefit of, exist of an existing customer base. You know, they may be able to bring in, you know, whether it's, whether it's Starwood or some other kind of, you know, Hyatt or whatever they're going to do for a hotel um, alliance if they can bring some people in there. But I'm very skeptical of them being able to come in with really high rates. Um, and I also think that, you know, the analysts who think that it won't, that adding, you know, a few thousand more rooms won't affect the glut of rooms at the top of the market. Um, and that obviously pressures everyone down the ladder. I think they're whistling past the graveyard too. So, yeah. um, you know, I, this is, you know, Dave, Dave, you, when Dave said they're opening at an interesting time, he obviously meant that in the Chinese perspective or in the Chinese <laughs> way. Um, and, and, you know, it's a horrible time for them to be opening. They can say, you know, now, you know, maybe, maybe things will be getting better at the end of the year. Um, I don't know that, but, um, you know, the market certainly doesn't need a couple thousand more rooms, but they're going to get them. Um, and you know, that's, you know, they, they're doing what's best for them and that's the way the, the market works. Um, and, and, you know, I always love having a new property open. It's just more interesting stuff. But in terms of the, the business strength of Las Vegas, do I think that will drive incremental visitation to town? No. I, don't, I think it's less interesting than, than city center. I was always skeptical of city center's ability to move the needle in terms of visitation. There's not as much, I don't think, architectural um, something being architecturally interesting moves the needle. Um, it doesn't have, you know, fantastic, um, you know, I wrote a column about this a month and a half ago about, um, it's not 
something like the volcano or or the pirate show or the kind of things that make people say, God, we got to go back. We haven't been to Vegas in two years, four years, six years, and see that. There really hasn't been anything like that open for a long time, and certainly not Cosmopolitan. I mean, you know, it, it's half of city center or less, and I just don't see it moving the needle much at all, except for the owners um, who maybe will start finally getting some money rolling back in. You you touched on an interesting point, um, which is that some analysts have actually said that they don't expect the addition of these rooms to bring down rates or in some – in one semi-twisted theory, it actually would make rates go up. Um, Dave, do you see any logic in that? Could you imagine a scenario where that might be true? In my world, I see no logic. <laughs> and that's the thing in Las Vegas where – I'm underwater in a house, 15% or more of people who live around me are unemployed. I don't see the logic in it. Uh, you know, I wish it was true. I, I really wish it was true. If believing in it could make it happen, I would gladly believe in it. But I, I just don't see how it is. It's just simple economics. You know, you've got a finite customer base. You've got a limited amount of rooms. You add more rooms, you're diluting the the, the the demand and you're not increasing supply. You know, I don't see how it could possibly help. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm not seeing the big picture here, but, but I don't see it. He's right. It's pure economics. Supply goes up. Demand it doesn't move the needle on demand. In the '90s, when you opened, you know, obviously Mirage moved the demand needle a lot, way more than the supply went up with 3,000 rooms. In 93, when you opened Luxor, MGM, and uh, Treasure Island, those properties moved the demand needle a lot more, more so than 10,000 rooms. Um, at the end of the 90s, you know, the incredible Bellagio Lake, um, you know, Mandalay, Venetian, Paris, um, they moved the demand side more than the supply side increased supply. Um, the latent the latent wait for more quality rooms when Wynn opened Wynn Las Vegas drove the demand side. Rates continued to go up because demand outpaced supply. Now all of a sudden you have the you know the double whammy of a, a big economic abyss combined with dramatic supply increases with you know Palazzo Encore City Center now Cosmopolitan, not one of which appreciably moves the demand side now you know maybe obviously that's affected by the economy but no demand is at best even probably down and yet you're adding all this supply i mean it's just rudimentary economics and for that you know the analysts suggest you know it's a really twisted kind of logic that makes no sense to me either um, I do not. I, I would. I would love to get a hear a panel of casino industry bosses on truth serum, and not one of them would say that it's that it's going to be a positive for their property. And well, you know, there's another issue here, which is that business travel is still down, and that's a big part of a lot of these, you know, resorts. Uh, Aria needs it. They've got that huge convention center. They spent a lot of money to get lead certification for that convention center, so they could lure these you know, big conventions. And until they get that, even if they could get $400 a night from their FIT and their free and independent travelers, they're not 
you know, they need to get that convention rate. They need to get a lot of people in there paying $200, $250 a night, you know, these big convention blocks. And I don't see how cosmopolitan opening is going to help that. No, you're absolutely right. That's the fourth. It's the fourth leg of the table. You have the week. You have the two legs on the weekdays. That's the convention business and the ec- economic tour and travel business. And then on the weekend, you have the FIT, the people who make the decision and come and spend big money on their own, and then the comp gamblers. It, the, you know, the opening of this property or the 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 downfall of the convention business has taken that you know, that one leg that props up the table. And, and so they end up relying even more on those bargain hunters. So they have to lower rates a lot. I mean, you know, that's why people are still getting room rates at Win and Encore for the very low 100s and under $100 or right at $100 at the other top properties in town. It's a consumer bonanza and it's a, you know, and, and it's a hotel conflagration. Well, I was just making sure that I uh, I wasn't crazy because I you know when some of those uh, quotes were coming out it didn't make any sense to me but that seems to be the consensus but um, you know the normal laws of economics haven't been suspended uh, in the case of this uh, of this opening. Yeah, if I can um, ramble on about this for another minute. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think we're starting to get to the point. I, I think maybe five years ago I would have been a lot more willing to give people slack with these novel economic theories and things like that just because there seemed to be so much upside. And I think we're getting to a point almost where it's like we're the villagers with the torches and they're Frankenstein's monster. Like people are going to start trying hold, holding people accountable for, for stuff like this. It's just, you you know, it. I think we've got to acknowledge that there are definite problems with supply. I was on KMPR with an analyst who said, well, we don't have a gaming problem. We don't have a a visitation problem, we have an oversupply problem, and well, you know, we do have a visitation problem. Visitation is down. Convention of visitation is down by more than a quarter, you know, in the past couple of years. That is a major problem when you build a 3,000-room hotel that's supposed to be, you know, selling a big block of rooms to convention people in the midweek. You know, that is a big problem, and it it just boggles my mind that people will insist, oh, no, we don't really have a problem, when it's obvious that we do, and from everything I've heard, admitting you have a problem is the first step to recovery. <laughs> And, Dave, the fact that we've just opened, um, and including Cosmopolitan, we've opened with more than $15 billion in new resorts, if you include Palazzo, Encore, City Center, and Cosmopolitan. And they haven't moved the needle on on the demand side. I mean, yeah, we have a supply problem, but when you look at it in terms of what has been spent to try and get additional customers... I mean, before Palazzo opened, um, the former um, president and uh, COO of Las Vegas Sands, Bill Widener, um, I spent a you know a long phone call with him where he was telling me about how you know when Palazzo and Encore opened and City Center opened that these things were going to drive so much new visitation that the average hotel room rates for most for these top properties were going to be three hundred, four hundred dollars. They felt that there was an almost unlimited um, elasticity among the wealthy people of the world to come to Vegas, and that the more new properties opened, the the higher they could drive room rates, and the more people were going to come to town. Well, that has just now, you know, the the, the dampening of the economy has hurt that. But I think there was, like you said, there was a dramatic miscalculation about just how big 
the top end of the market was and how many people were willing to come to Las Vegas and spend at the top end. And we're not just talking about rooms. We're not just talking about gambling. You know, we're talking about, you know, doubling the number of like very expensive bottle service clubs, doubling or tripling the number of, you know, main, you know, star chef, um, owned, owned restaurants, all of those and, and incredible and an incredible increase in the supply of very high end retail, um, you know, with crystals, with what Fontainebleau had planned, um, cosmopolitan and, uh, and, you know, the additional supply of retail at, you know, with Barney's and, and, uh, Palazzo and with Wynn's incremental new retail. Um, so all those things have just been crushed. And, you know, only five years ago, they thought there was an inexhaustible supply of people who were going to come in and spend their money there. A incredible miscalculation, um, obviously exacerbated by the economy, but you're right. Eventually somebody's going to say, Hey, who is making these calls? Now, just to point out that there's always a silver lining, I think there's still definitely a demand out there for this stuff. You know, um, I know on Vegas Tripping on the board, there is a, a post about um, speculation that Encore Beach Club isn't doing so well because they've got a Twitter deal. But, you know, I was down there on Monday around one thirty, two o'clock, and it was just packed there were people waiting in line to get in, you know, on a weekday. And I just thought like, wow, you know, Wynn has again discovered alchemy, you know, the way that you turn chlorine into gold. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it, you know, and it just boggles my mind that people that, you know, there's a demand for that, but it's there. I mean, obviously, you know, geez, we can see the people, we can count the money in the cash registers. There, There is a demand for it. But yeah, I think it's a finite demand, but there's definitely a demand there. And I think, you know, in the big picture, people want to come to Vegas. People want to have fun. You're going to have people want, wanting to come to Vegas. It's just in the short term, it doesn't look so hot. Do you remember how five years ago, six years ago, everybody was saying, you know, it's could it, it, it may be the death of the show. The younger people, they don't want to go to a show. They want to be part of the show. They want to be hobnobbing with celebrities and drinking bottle service. And and there's been some truth to that. Um, certainly, there has, the market has evolved. Things like um, you know day life parties, whether at Wynn and elsewhere. Um, we may, you know we obviously are at the same time as we're seeing an oversupply on the room side. Um, and uh, some tough times for some people in terms of the non-Baccarat-based non gambling side. Um, those folks who have invested and succeeded in some of these evolving new trends, whether it's, whether it's successful bottle service day and day-life pool-oriented um, clubs, they are, those venues are doing well. Um, we are seeing a transformation. It's going to be interesting to see generationally how those folks, and this is um, something else that um, I've been talking about recently at home, how will, you know, are young people going to continue? Are they going to be largely spending on the club side? Is it going to be an F&B-oriented crowd where people will get comp for F&B spending in terms of, you know, free rooms rather than gaming? Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if the orientation, if hosts really are more concerned about getting in the people who are willing to spend, you know, a guaranteed twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars at, you know, XS or at one of the one of the big clubs, 
instead of somebody who's willing to spend 50 or 100 on the tables. Um, and so, you know, we may be seeing, you know, sort of a paradigm shift in terms of uh, the profit centers as well. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I know a lot of people that appear um, uh, that they're not spending $50,000 at excess, but if they look at the but where they spent their money over their stay, it much it's much more heavily weighted towards food and beverage and nightclubs versus gambling. And they are sometimes frustrated by the fact that they don't get to participate in any of the rewards programs because they're just not set up that way. I mean, they'll spend extra money to stay in a nice suite, but uh, you know, and they may spend as much money overall on their trip as somebody that just lost the same amount of tables and they're not treated the same way and they get very frustrated by that sort of um you know inequality in the way that the two things are set up so it's it's an interesting point i think i think you're right i think that you know as as companies and certainly win realizes i mean he always used to tell me the money falls fastest from the top line to the bottom line on the casino floor and you know i sort of repeated that to him a couple of years ago not too long after he and uh, Victor Dre had reorganized uh, Excess. And he said, not anymore. <laughs> you know, not anymore. That's the fastest money from the top line to the bottom line is at the bottom bottle service clubs. Um, and now it's still good on the casino floor, but um, it shouldn't take too long for folks who um, are really spending significant money in the clubs to be able to, you know, they may not get treated you know, it's hard to spend a million dollars. You know, when I'll bring in a few customers probably every weekend who are spending a million dollars or more on the gaming side. Um, right. and, and those people are put up in villas and, you know, treated with a lot of deference. It's, it's probably hard to spend like that in the clubs, but certainly it's easy to spend 20 to 100 in those venues. And people who spend 20 to 100 in the casino – you're right. They get a lot of, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly RFB, room food, beverage, and more. Um, you know, when they realize the net that they're getting off those kind of people in the clubs, I would predict that it won't be too long before those people, it may not be parity, but they'll at least get much better treatment in terms of their, you know, um, comparability at the whole resort. I definitely know some people that will be happy when that eventually uh, when that shift takes place. I, I agree. I think it's inevitable, um, and it just you know as as the ability to track that spending improves and the cost of those kinds of tracking systems comes down, uh, and the casinos get a better idea of the true value of some of their customers. It only you know it makes logical sense. I mean they're you know they're in the business of making money, and uh, by um, treating those customers well, who cares where they're spending their money as if as long as uh, you know they're uh, they're spending it there. So uh, I think it is inevitable. It's just a matter of time. Um, let's quickly touch on the uh, Riviera, which um, is in financial shithole again. Um, but I, I'm actually kind of wondering: is this even a story? Actually, uh, David McKee, former Vegas gangster himself, um, proclaimed this as a non-story. Uh, and I think that's maybe based on the fact that Riviera has been kind of teetering on the edge of um, of uh, destruction for so long, and it's been kind of the death watch on Riviera has um, 
has uh, been proclaimed many times. I don't know. It, it, they're in trouble. Uh, you know, news at 11. Um, they're at the low end of a, of a market that is uh, under a lot of pressure. So I'm not sure if it's much of a surprise. Chuck, you wrote about this on Vegas tripping. Um, do you think this is an important story? How does this impact the market? I think this is an important story. I think this is actually more the end of potentially the end of the trouble than it is, oh, they're actually in bankruptcy. Uh, I, now, I haven't read the filings and all this stuff, but just from, from what I've read from the local papers and whatnot, it seems like you know the people who have been holding the bag of the debt have uh, basically forgiven a big chunk of the debt to uh, uh, you know gain operating control of, of the resort. And the people, uh, one of the major... Uh, holders of that debt is uh, Starwood Capital Group, former owners of the Starwood Hotels Group, um, the CEO of which, uh, Barry Sternlicht, was the, uh, you know, he's the guy who sold the Desert Inn to Steve Wynn, and he was the head of Caesars. He orchestrated the sale of Caesars to Park Place, I believe. Uh, you know, so so now you're what what is happening is people who have a little bit maybe a, a, a better grasp on uh, turning around investments and people who are involved in uh, you know a higher level in the gaming business have a closer degree of control uh, of the business and it's also going to have a lot less debt to carry so you know, I think they're going to have like 50 million in debt to carry versus 230 or so, which you know is a lot less to have to pay uh, on. So it'll give them more leverage to be to become more competitive or give it more, make it more of an attractive uh, target for possibly somebody else to buy. So it, it, I think it just it moves the, the chess pieces around a little bit. And uh, it gives a couple of them a little bit better position. It gives things a little shinier gloss and, and uh, more appealing to everybody who's involved in the project. So I, I think it's going to be a good thing over the long term for what, what's going to happen to, to the Riviera. So I don't think it's a non-story at all. I disagree. Okay. Fair enough. Um it's funny, you know, there there are a couple of properties that I would sort of lump in together in that level, like Sahara, the Riv, Circus Circus, uh, maybe the Stratosphere, which are, you know, sort of also, you know, no surprise, geographically close to each other. Um, it's sort of kind of, you know, they're on the strip, but they're definitely um, off, for, you know, they're definitely a little bit more on the lower end of the scale. Um, but the Riv, honestly, out of all of those, Riviera, and I know Circus Circus is much maligned, but I find the Riviera to actually be a little bit more depressing inside than Circus Circus ever is. I mean, uh, Riviera to me always, has always felt like it's, it was uh, really past its heyday. I don't know if that's just me, but um, it, it it always feels like it's a little bit worse off than even the, the much maligned uh, Circus Squared. The big, the big problem for the Riviera was the closure of the Stardust. There was sort of a symbiosis between the Stardust. The casino was built right out to the Strip. Same with the Riviera. So you had a lot of cross-strip traffic back and forth. Now the Riviera, you know, um, immediately to the south, there's space between a, it and a property where, you know, there's not a lot of logical logical you know, ex exchange of traffic between Wynn and Encore and Riviera <laughs> to the north. 
you got to walk past the, you know, Fontainebleau construction site to get to a casino that doesn't really have a lot to recommend it anyway, the Sahara. Um, so really, all they have now is the slots of fun. You know, and the Westward Ho is gone. So all you have is the slots of fun and the Circus Circus and then down Convention Center Drive to that, you know, uh, I'll use the word hellhole. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so there's not, I mean, behind the property, there's the Las Vegas Hilton, but that's a very, very long walk, um, really a drive. So, you know, yeah, there's not, there's not a lot around the Riviera. It's a property that has always depended a lot on foot traffic. And, uh, you know, I've always, you know, it, to me, there's been, uh, even though it sometimes it appears sort of dead, I've all, it's always had sort of an amusing, um, I've always thought of it in sort of an amusing way because they, they hold these crazy funky conventions, you know, whether it's pool players, billiard, you know, um, uh, bowlers, you know, weird kind of collecting groups, um, funky family reunions. I mean, it is, they specialize in these sort of, you know, uh, you know, people who sell fossils, people, you know, um, I mean, just, you know, the craziest, the craziest kind of groups. And so it makes for a very interesting clientele. Um, you know, people I know who play poker, um, a lot of the groups that attend conventions there, you know, they make for very good poker opponents. So like a lot of the Las Vegas <laughs> poker sharks, um, you know, keep their eye on the Riviera's convention schedule. And let's say when the, you know, they have probably four or five billiards or pool events every year. And when those people come to town, every poker shark and every low level poker shark in town is heading over to the Riviera. Um, and so, you know, to me, there's, it's always had that sort of a little bit of a funky quality. I mean, all those low end properties have sort of an interesting mix of really, really old, nearly dead customers who have been coming there since the fifties and sixties mixed with the very young people who can only afford those places because they're just starting their careers. And so, you know, their clientele has always been interesting to me. It's a shame that, you know, its neighborhood has gone downhill so fast because the Riviera is not doing anything to prop the neighborhood up. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what comes next for the Riv. I, you know, there's as we've said, there's definitely not a market for uh, another, um, you know, five star resort on its property. But um, hopefully, it can limp along, stay open keep people employed and provide a good, um, you know, low cost alternative for people that want to stay on the strip. Don't care that much about their room, but um, don't want to pay a lot of money. Um, Can I, I want to see. Jack here. Oh yeah. Just, Go ahead. Jeff. I just want to throw this yeah. out. Just a little thing. Now we've seen in the past five years, uh, two or three uh, major renovations successful renovations done to properties that were much maligned. And I just want to get a real quick answer from you guys, maybe some odds or something. What are the possible chances, do you think, that somebody could execute a Planet Hollywood or Tropicana-style redo on the Riviera? 1.5%. Yeah, I put it in the Sahara category. Uh, this is Nazari- it would be Nazarian all over again. It would. I think it would just be like uh, lots of talk and no action. 
I I put it up very low. That property, the shape of the shape of the footprint is so awful. It's like a big triangle with a narrow point on the strip, and then they have all kinds of Paradise Road um, frontage, which is practically worthless. Um, I, I, it's just it's ridiculous. I mean, Tropicana is 150 or 165 million, but they have a four corner property, you know, with three other mega resorts there. Um, it would take a lot of change. So I'm talking, you know, five, 10 years, maybe, but in the near future, very little chance. Dave? Dave? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just, kind of it's been built in so many stages and everything, it would be really hard to do it well. You know, I think it's just such a mishmash right now. It, It would just be pretty difficult. Yeah. I'm gonna try and uh, fit in one more story before we go to the sh- our sure bet segment, and this is actually another Vegas tripping story. Um, Chuck, you're a constant source of my material for this show, so thank you for that. Um, but actually, this is a this is a post you wrote. This is sort of a, a Chuck Monster original, which is 10 years of MGM by the numbers. Um, and uh, I'll actually I'll let you explain what the post is um, for people that uh, might want to check it out. So, what's this post about? Well, I was uh, just kind of looking uh, last Friday or so at the uh, how uh, all the uh, how all the stocks closed last week, you know, just to look see what what was uh, what was going on there, and uh, I, I saw that that MGM closed at uh, ten bucks, you know, just just below ten bucks, and it seemed a little uh, a little distressing to me. Like there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, you know, everybody else seems to be doing a lot better than these guys, it seems like. And, I, and I'm just trying to figure out uh, what what was going on. So I just pulled out the last 10 years of the chart and attached uh, uh, various events to peaks and valleys in the uh, in in the in the uh, their stock price, just to see how investors have reacted to all of the uh, uh, the moves that they've made. Starting pretty much just about ten years ago with the uh, ap- approval of the Mirage Resorts takeover, uh, their stock was uh, at well at the time it was uh, forty bucks. It was about forty-one dollars or so, but it has since split. So adjusted for split, it, that now is like twenty. So uh, you know they kind of muffled around that that rate until uh, the uh, the Mandalay. Uh, buyout was uh, was announced in 2004. It shot up a little bit for a little while, and then starting in 2006, late 2006, all the way up to the peak, you know, they went on a, a tear, near vertical motion upwards. With at the top of the peak, um, they sold uh, 10% of their stock to Infinity World. Uh, right after that, a few other things happened. Yeah, exactly at the top. <laughs> whoever whoever engineered that one, man, I hope they got a bonus. <laughs> yeah, that guy jumped off a building. But anyway, continue. yeah, yeah, and right after that, you know, there was a lot of hype. That was like the height of Macau hysteria, right uh, in advance of uh, the MGM Grand Macau opening and MGM Grand Detroit opened at about that time, and. Right at the turn of the year, there, uh, 2007 
2008, everything, the house of cards, completely collapsed. Uh, economy had a lot to do with it, of course, as we know. Uh, Terry Lanny retired, uh, and right after he retired, their stock took a pretty big uh, hit. It, it dropped from about 30 bucks a share to 18 within within about a week or two. Uh, and, it, and it really has has just gone worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, slowly, you know, it's kind of crawled a little bit out. But over the over the course of, of 10 years, their stock price, price alone, is less now. And this includes the split, less now than it was when they took over Mirage Resorts. Adjusted for inflation uh, using the... Uh, uh, the government uh, inflation control application that they have on the website there, uh, it's actually lost, uh, I think, another 20-something, 20 27% or so. So if you had bought MGM stock 10 years ago uh, compared to now, you've lost a whole bunch of money. But now you own Bellagio, and uh, you've spent $10 million on a gleaming resort. So – only five, only five billion. They suckered the Dubai people into half of that. There you go. They suckered Dubai out of out of half of it. But uh, that's absolutely correct. So, you know, my my question is is at this point is how long if you're a shareholder, uh, it's there was two two points also before I get into if you're if you're a shareholder, how long are you going to sit around and and accept this stuff kind of happening? And the other thing is, is after, as a person who, who worked in, during the dot-com boom, I was involved in that as a, a developer. Um, you know, I, I was with a company that went from an IPO to being 86 bucks for a share on the first day. It made everybody in the company extremely wealthy very quickly. You know, within two weeks, people were driving who were people who were we're losing you a little bit, Chuck. Yeah, you're going to stop you there. Yep, you're back. And you're back. Okay, I'm just going back to the. Uh, yeah, it's getting my... really good. Yeah, we were. It was in. We lost you in full rant. I like. It was that. really good. So you. So the IPO went from went to eighty six bucks. All right. Oh yeah. The IPO it went from zero. You know, I think the opening price was maybe eleven or twelve dollars to eighty six dollars in in the course of a day. So everybody who I worked with, uh, you know, they're all showing up at work with BMWs. They went from Toyota Corollas to BMWs within the course of two weeks, and were buying houses in Santa Monica. And you know, people became millionaires on paper. The stock crashed within a, about a year after that. And the company folded. You know, this is like this is the dot com thing. We, you know, people were millionaires on paper, but they were all unemployed. Uh, and then they had to pay taxes. People had to pay taxes on these supposed, you know, on these uh, uh, stock purchase and buy value uh, in, uh, income. So they're unemployed. They don't have any money, but they have to pay money. They have to pay taxes on money that they never actually had. You know, if they only bought a, a sold out a certain percentage of. But anyway, uh, the point being is this uh, incredible vertical motion of MGM uh, can put the can really screw the mindset of the people who work there. It can screw the mindset of people who work there, people who are there. Uh, and and I tried to draw a parallel between uh, MySpace as as a uh, 
as a a, a social media uh, story kind of like that. You know, a friend of mine works at MySpace, and if they're still they still think they're on top inside. They still think that they're the biggest social network. They haven't realized that they've been destroyed by everybody, and they they lumber and hulk like a large, slow company that's already the victor. They've already won. And I wonder if this same type of uh, arrogance is what's happening in MGM Mirage and how long it will take for either that to shake out or for them to, to figure out that they actually really do need to hustle now. The, the boom is over. It's probably not going to happen again. And they really have a lot of work to do. So I was trying to just sort of get some discussion going about that. It didn't really work so well, but the graph looks great. Oh well, see, I thought your post was fascinating, and I guess um, I apologize for not jumping in to the discussion to refute, uh, you know, Brian Fay's cheerleading of his stock that he owns. But um, <laughs> the thing that struck me about this chart is that to met to a lar- large degree, I don't see them moving the needle. I see external events moving their stock price. They were just to me it looks like they were just riding the wave of their industry. That they it wasn't actually like they were that their yeah. stock was moving based on their own actions. And I mean that's not entirely true, but it almost looked like they were just riding this trend of what was going on in their industry and the economy at large versus, you know, them creating a lot of new value for shareholders. I don't know. I'm actually really curious to hear what Dave and um Jeff think about this because uh, you know it's interesting to look at a company over a long period like this and see kind of how how they've done go ahead Dave yeah I really like seeing somebody actually take the time to do the research get the numbers and you know not only have an opinion but back that opinion up with some real numbers so I think Chuck is to be commended for that you know it's it's really cool and it just is very that red line running across the uh chart there just kind of says it all. So I think it really does say a lot about what's real and what's not as far as the stock goes. I, You know, you look at, um, I think Hunter makes a pretty interesting point, though, when you look at the industry as a whole. Um, you know, those who were uh, involved in the uh, Las Vegas Sands IPO were probably feeling uh, pretty suicidal a year and a half ago. Um, but then again, those who bought a year and a half ago are feeling uh, pretty damn good about themselves, even though the economy and the market and the casino business may not be doing well. Prospects for Las Vegas Sands, particularly in Asia, um, look pretty good. So, and, and, you know, WIN may have been the most resistant to the incredible volatility of the casino industry changes, um, but there has been incredible volatility in the industry's stock prices. Um, you know, you look at those folks who sold out to those leveraged buyouts, um, you know, the, the big mutual funds and a few company insiders who um, were involved in Harris and Station. I mean, the big winner of, you know, the Harris deal was, um, you know, Baron Hilton, who's, you know, sold all of his stock at, you know, 90 some dollars or whatever. Um, there's a lot of people who made money, a lot of people who lost money. Um, I think that, you know, I know a lot of people care a lot about stock prices. Um, it's never been my overwhelming interest. Um, I like to think more long-term in terms of 
what the company's doing, its viability, what they're building, and its long-term ability to throw off profit. Um, I think that's what makes good companies. Um, so, you know, this, you know, quarter-to-quarter, even year-to-year focus um, that the Wall Street analysts sort of demand, um, I think, is bad for the business in the long term. I like operators who are willing to thumb their nose at that kind of analysis in different ways. Um, Sheldon Adelson and even more so Steve Wynn, I think, have proven their ability to do that. And so, um, you know, I think they all do a little bit, you know, they – you know, whether it was Lanny or Murren, certainly they, you know, did look a little bit at what, um, you know, the shares were doing. But, you know, they've always had the luxury of having a 50% or more lately, I think, a 40% or so shareholder in Kirk Kerkorian. And, uh, you know, when times were good, Kerkorian wanted to buy more shares, but the shareholders wouldn't sell. Um, so he, um, and then he ended up selling a 10% slice of the company to Dubai as well as a 50% share of City Center, one of the great sucker deals of all time. Um, and uh, and and uh, it couldn't happen to a nicer group of folks. Thanks for rebating some of our high-priced oil uh, yeah. purchases. So thank you very much. Um, you know, and, and, and I mean, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing you did, Chuck, but I really think probably – Almost every company in the business has a has a pretty interesting story. If you did their stock on a timeline, um, I don't think MGM has been any worse than the average company. Um, I you know I've pretty much liked their deals all the way. Every time they've done a deal, whether it was buying Mirage Resorts, whether it was buying um, Mandalay Resort Group, I like those deals. I certainly like the City Center sale, um, but you know. I think the Mirage Resorts purchase is one of those rare deals where everybody wins. Mirage Resorts, I mean, MGM adds, you know, the best property in the business, Bellagio, as well as a few other blue chip properties. It makes its company into a, you know, it, it vaults it right into the top of the big leagues. But by the same token, it gave Wynn the ability to build a company branded in a modern way with only top flight best in market properties, whether Macau, Las Vegas, and maybe elsewhere, wherever he goes, if he goes someplace else, he's not going to build the second best property in a market. And that's sort of a cool thing for your brand to just be able to say, yep, if we have a property, it's at the top of the market. So yeah, MGM's had some good deals. I don't think their their management should be more criticized than a bunch of other managers who's made, who've made some questionable decisions. But in general, the big decisions MGM has made, I think, have been good ones. So, you know, I wouldn't criticize them that much. The stock price has gone up and down. But in general, I've liked the kind of things they've they've done, um, I, with, with the exception of, and I'm not sure about this, some of the decisions they made with City Center, um, but but other than that, their purchases, I think, have been pretty good. I think uh, <clears throat> we're going to let that be the last word on that topic, and we're going to move into our endorsement section. Uh, this is the sure bet section of the show. Every Each one of us uh, gets to relay something that we think is interesting that uh, the listeners might want to check out. So, um, Dr. Dave, I'll start with you if that's okay. 
Sure. Um, if you really like that day club scene, but you don't want to pony up the money for a cabana, which is how much is a how much does a cabana go for these days? If you have to ask, club. Yeah, <laughs> thousands, hundreds of thousands, whatever it is. If you can't, if you don't want to do that, I can suggest something else. The Henderson Multi Generational Centers Activity Pool, the 250 South Green Valley Parkway, Paseo Verde and Green Valley, is right up your alley. Only three dollars for adults to get in. Um, <laughs> two to seventeen is two dollars, and under that, it's free if you're under two. They've got a great pool. It's about 18 inches of water. You can walk around. You can kind of lay in it. Um, there's a lot of little waterfalls and things like that. There is a water slide uh, that there's a really long wait for, but it's totally worth it. They do not have bottle service. There is a water fountain. There's also a hot dog stand with <laughs> lots of savory delights and ice cream treats and vending machines. So it's really like the anti-day club. So if you're in Vegas... You've only got $3. Uh, you don't want to hit the day club scene. <laughs> Come down here. Um, this is for you, Henderson Multi-Gen Activity Pool. All right. Thank you, Dave. Um, <laughs> Jeff, how about you? Well, I certainly can't match that, but uh, that was that was fantastic, Dave. Um, Thanks. I would like to uh, call everyone's attention to the new uh, – Boulder City Bypass being constructed on uh, um, just um, just uh, south of the Hoover Dam. Um, I think it's just south, but it's right next to the Hoover Dam. If you cross the Hoover Dam, you can't miss the brand new bridge, the incredible epic span that's being built. Um, and in so that sort of specifically on your next visit to Vegas, and then when it's completed, you should definitely check it out. But um, more generally to um, U.S. 95. Um, I think that um, the highway between Phoenix and Las Vegas and Reno and then heading up north to uh, sort of dividing Idaho and uh, Oregon and Washington. Um, I wrote a column a few years ago advocating that our federal legis legislators here should be making a big, strong push to get a new interstate built along that route. Um, and it's been talked about more recently. Uh, the Brookings Institution weighed in on the issue and said that, you know, Las Vegas and Phoenix are the two biggest metrop nearby metropolitan areas not connected by an interstate highway. Um, the you know, they, they're calling it Interstate 11 um, that would um, be sort of the first after Interstate 5, sort of the next big north-south um, interstate that would run um, – that would run from Phoenix or even further south in um, Arizona all the way up um, to at least Reno, and I would say farther north. Um, I think that it would be a huge benefit to Las Vegas to have a second big interstate-connected metropolitan area, and I'm talking about Phoenix. Um, the After 9-11, um, when people couldn't get here by airfare, and people were scared to travel for, by air for a long time. The I-15 corridor um, is where we got all our customers for a while, or almost all of them. And having a second pressure relief valve heading into um, Phoenix, people can get here from Phoenix, but it's a much more challenging drive than it would be over an interstate. And Phoenix is a big multi-million dollar um, population city, 
growing city. And uh, I think it would be a great thing for Las Vegas, a great thing for people traveling around the West, checking out, you know, the, the various awesome national parks. Um, so I think it would be a great thing for us here in Las Vegas, a great thing for the country in general. Um, so check out this bridge. It would be a part of that interstate um, if and when it gets built, and I think it will. And, uh, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed that we eventually get another big north-south interstate uh, helping our Las Vegas economy. Nice. All right. Uh, Mr. Chuck Monster, how about you? I have a new favorite TV show. <laughs> and it is, much to uh, kind of my surprise a little bit, it is on every day of the week, very, very late at night, perfect for my time, and it's about gambling. The show, I'm sure most of you have seen, is called Poker After Dark. That's on awesome. And I tell you, it is like watching Survivor every day, but it's like a soap opera, and it's it's hysterical. Even if you don't like poker, watching these guys play and talk and bullshit and kibitz with each other is one of the funniest and most enthralling conversations you'll ever see. These guys take poker just from hand to hand to hand, whatever, and poker doesn't even matter. They're betting on like whether there's going to be a seven in the flop. They have, they're like passing around clipboards, keeping track of this insane multidimensional array of, of prop bets, probabilities, and everything that's going on here. There's like nine levels of gambling going on here at once. This is like the Albert Einstein thing. And, and it's not every, every week or so they, have a different group of people. Like right now, this week, this is like all the people who have done announcements on various other poker shows. But the week previous, if you ever see that they're going to have uh, Tom Dwan and uh, Negranu and Phil Helmuth and uh, Phil Ivey particularly involved in that, definitely schedule to tape that. Tape a whole week and then watch all four or five episodes in a row and you'll be transfixed. It's better than Star Wars. Good call. I watch. I watch it regularly. Good call. Yeah. All right. Good. 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 Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Uh, I'm going to endorse the uh, podcast of Palooza coming up October 30th. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited about it, and um, I really want to encourage people to try to come if they can. It was a lot of fun. It's. I. I think I could speak for everybody here. I definitely could speak for myself. It's a lot of fun to do the show, not just do the show live, but also to, to meet listeners of the show and um, to talk to folks. It, uh, it had a blast last time, and I'm really hoping to be able to do that again and make it even bigger and better than it was last time. So I really want to encourage folks to, if they can, come out and um, and see the show and have a great time. So uh, Hunter may not want every. Hunter may not want everybody to know it, but he's negotiating with both a penguin and a, an actual pink flamingo to uh, be the podcast of Palooza guest. So yeah. it'll be interesting <laughs> to see who he lines up. <laughs> Working hard. Working hard. All right. I think that's it for today. Um, thanks to everybody for being here. Let me go around the table and you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, where can people track you down? Um, Divecast.com, uh, UNLV Gaming on uh, Twitter. Excellent. Jeff Simpson, how about you? Simpson Las Vegas at Yahoo.com. And 
and Mr. Chuck Monster. You can find me at VegasTrippingOneWord.com. Excellent. You can find me at RateVegas.com. Thanks to everybody. Have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Okay. Stay cool. Bye.